Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Warriors. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show that proves that sometimes people hide their true evil character behind a military uniform, or sometimes they hide behind a closely associated relationship. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. I would just like to give a huge shout out to everyone who has recently left me a rating and review either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am truly amazed when I get to read your review and it really helps me to feel more connected to you. I am 100 reviews shy of 2,000 reviews on Apple. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving the show a quick five stars. And if you want to say hey, just leave a review. One more housekeeping note. If you need more Mamo Margot during the week or in video format, follow my new YouTube channel. You just go to YouTube and then my at is Mama Margot. All you have to do is click subscribe and whenever I upload a new video, you'll be notified. So today I am taking you to beautiful Colorado Springs, one of my all-time favorite assignments. My first daughter was born at Fort Carson, so I hold the town and the base close to my heart. But in all the cases that I covered, today's case and one other one that I covered for my premium subscribers on the murders of Kevin Shields and Robert James, Well, these two cases, both out of Fort Carson, they left me with a very dark and disgusting feeling in the pit of my stomach. Serial killer cases are always hard to listen to, but when they involve more than one serial killer working in tandem and all with some connection to Fort Carson, the shock value is too much to handle. Trigger warning, one of the murders I mentioned today does involve the discussion of rape. Join me today as I tell you about a brutal killing spree sweeping the streets of Colorado Springs and nearby Fort Carson in the summer of 1975. Joe Kenda from Homicide Hunter for any of my Investigation Discovery fans, he has even called these cases one of the most infamous cases in the history of Colorado Springs. Now, let's dig in. Colorado Springs is truly an amazing city. I am shocked to learn that some people don't like it there, but from my own personal experience, it is one of the most beautiful places to be stationed, at least stateside. Regardless of where you're standing in Colorado Springs, you are able to see Pikes Peak, one of the many mountain ranges that's peak is over 14,000 feet above sea level. If you're ever in the area, I do encourage you to take a trip up Pikes Peak either by car or train. When you're up there, you truly feel like you're close to heaven. The air is thin, the hustle and bustle of town is gone, and it's just you and nature. Being so far up, you almost feel like you're about to fall. Colorado Springs is also home of a handful of military installations. You can't make a left-hand turn without bumping into federal, I mean specifically military, land. It's home to Fort Carson, Peterson and Schriever Air Force Bases, the United States Air Force Academy, and Cheyenne Mountain Space Force Station. There are also various outposts. So let me take you back to 1975. President Gerald Ford is president. The Vietnam War has officially ended. 
Steven Spielberg's iconic movie Jaws was just released in theaters in June. The Pittsburgh Steelers defeated the Minnesota Vikings in Super Bowl IX. Yes, I said Super Bowl IX. And over in Colorado Springs, homicide detectives were trying to solve a string of murders that, while initially appearing to have no connection to each other, would result in the takedown of a pair of serial killers operating at a Fort Carson. At about 3.30 a.m. on June 17, 1975, Willis Evans, a truck driver, was driving down Highway 115 in Colorado Springs when he spotted something. Willis pulled his truck over to investigate, and when he did, he was shocked to find that beside a truck, like an F-150 truck, not a semi, there was a man laying dead. When the detectives arrived on scene, it was evident that the deceased man had been ambushed. A quick look at the man's truck revealed that it had been riddled with bullets. The front windshield had 11, I repeat, 11 bullet holes, and the body of the truck had three. Detectives surmised that more than one weapon had been used in this ambush. While no wallet was found at the crime scene, it didn't take detectives long to identify the deceased man. It was a 19-year-old soldier named Francis Gerald Ramesh, who went by Jerry. Jerry grew up in Grand Junction in Palisade, Colorado, and he was lucky enough to be stationed at Fort Carson as his first assignment. Not only was he stationed close to home, but he was also stationed with one of his brothers. Jerry actually came from a very big family. He had four sisters and three brothers. When investigators looked into what Jerry could have possibly been doing before he died, they discovered that Jerry had actually been in a picnic area not too far from where he was found. It was 175 yards away. Jerry was sleeping in his car when he was ambushed. Jerry woke up, likely in shock, drove his car through some fences and stopped on the other side of the highway. Then it appeared that he got out of his car in an attempt to get away and he may have been shot again. An autopsy showed that he had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the back. Detectives were stumped. Who wanted to kill Jerry? Why so many shots at the vehicle? So they started digging. But while they were trying to find Jerry's murderer or murderers, there was another murder just a day and a half after Jerry was found. On June 19th, a state patrolman was driving down Janitelle Road when he spotted something up a road. When he stopped to check on it, it was another dead body or an almost dead body. A man blindfolded with a scarf with one gunshot wound to the head. He was clutching an empty wallet. The patrolman noticed that the man was still alive, but barely clinging to life. He was immediately taken to the hospital, but the man didn't survive. The man was later identified as 29-year-old Daniel Van Loan. Originally from Johnstown, New York, he had previously served in the army from 64 to 71 serving at least two tours in Korea and Vietnam. After he left the army, he married his wife, Mary, in 72, and he took her two children in as his own, and together they had two more kids. They had just moved to Colorado Springs from Grand Junction a few months before the murder. Immediately before his death, Daniel had worked the 3 to 11 p.m. shift at the Four Seasons Motor Inn. Daniel had picked up a job there as a cook, after he got off work at 11 p.m., someone recalled seeing him sitting in the lobby watching TV, and then he took off. And it's crazy because Daniel's body was found about a mile from the Four Seasons, and his car was still parked outside of work. Colorado Springs detectives now had two murders in the span of less than 48 hours, and of course, they put their heads together to ask if the murder of Fort Carson soldier Jerry and veteran Daniel were in any way connected. And at that point in the early investigation, they didn't see a connection at all. 
But then, a week and a half later, another murder. Another soldier. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. On June 27th, a resident who lived on the 700 block of Prospect Lake Drive opened their door to find a man bleeding to death on their porch. The man who had been stabbed was barely alive and clutching a $10 bill in his hands. The man was rushed to the hospital and immediately went into the operating room. But sadly, he died four hours later. The man was Winford Prophet, an 18-year-old Fort Carson soldier. Winford was a native of Hamilton, Ohio, but he was used to moving having spent some time in Nebraska and then Florida. Winford was married to his high school sweetheart, Kathy. He hadn't even been in the military a year at the time of his death. When investigators started looking into Winford's death, they found someone who was with him moments before his death, a 17-year-old companion named Jeffrey. While I can't say for sure, I bet you that the 17-year-old was a soldier, but that's not important for the story and it hasn't been mentioned anywhere. That night, Winford was out with 17-year-old Jeffrey and they were driving around looking for marijuana. When interviewed, Jeffrey revealed the following. Earlier that night, Jeffrey gave Winford $10 to buy marijuana. Then they went searching. At one point, as they're driving, they no-kidding approached two strangers in a car and they asked, hey, do you know where we can score some MJ? The strangers were like, yeah, just follow us. So Winford and Jeffrey followed the strangers in their vehicle to Prospect Lake. Then Winford and one of the guys in the other car got out and walked to a secluded area. Jeffrey figured they were trying to get out of the public to exchange money for marijuana. But when Jeffrey saw the stranger reappear without Winford, Jeffrey's initial thoughts were, oh shit, this is a drug sting. Fearing that he would go to jail for drugs, he got out of the car and ran like hell. 
Not seeing or hearing from Winford, Jeffrey just figured Winford had been arrested or something. Until he learned the truth. Winford had been stabbed and he was dead. You see, the evidence showed that Winford had been stabbed in the chest, but then managed to either walk or drag himself to the nearest house and collapse on the porch. The teen gave a description of the men he saw in the car, but initially the description led nowhere. And then another murder. At about 3 a.m. on July 1st, a resident of the Wasatch Mobile Trailer Village, a man named John Hudson, he was getting back to his trailer, and as he's walking through the trailer, he saw that his back porch was on. He took a peek out the window, and he saw someone laying on his porch. You know, John was a little tiffed, thinking some drunk-ass person passed on his porch, so he opened the door, ready to yell when he was shocked at all the blood. There, he saw a young woman laying on his steps, covered in blood, and her eyes were opened like a rag doll. John immediately dialed 911 and too fearful to go back outside until the cops arrived. The police arrived and they found a white female who appeared to be in her early 20s. She was dead, her hair was matted in blood and dirt, and they immediately realized that the cause of death, well, it was a huge gash on the side of her neck. The back door to John's trailer was covered in bloody handprints, likely from the victim, and the handprints stopped short about two inches from the doorbell. The victim had no form of identification on her person. The Jane Doe was transported to the coroner's office while the police canvassed the area around John's house. And as they were canvassing the area, it didn't take long to discover another area just 800 or so feet away from the house where there was a pool of blood and then a trail of blood from that location to where the woman was found. The detective surmised that the woman was stabbed near the street and then stumbled to John's house since the back porch light was on and she was just trying to get help. Back at the coroner's office, they determined that the woman bled to death from a knife wound to the neck that lacerated a major blood vessel. The medical examiner estimated that it took her between 5 and 10 minutes to bleed out. As Joe Kinda put it in the episode of Homicide Hunter that covered this case, it wouldn't have mattered if the best surgeon in the country lived in that trailer no one could have saved this young woman. The woman had also been stabbed in the back several times and it was apparent that she fought back as evidenced by the defensive wounds on her hands. While the ME couldn't be sure that the victim had been sexually assaulted, they did find trace evidence of semen on the victim's pants. The ME confirmed the woman had no form of identification on her except the ME did find a single gold key in her front pant pocket. The key was the only thing that they had. Detectives returned to John, the trailer owner, to see if maybe he knew who this woman was. And he said that while he knew everyone who lived in that trailer park, he could say with certainty he had never once seen this woman. Now, in this particular case, detectives didn't just have a murder on their hands. They had to work to identify the victim. And that most definitely was the first key to solving this murder. Detectives working this Jane Doe homicide checked the victim's descriptions to recently reported missing persons, but that led to another dead end. Then, a few days after the murder, the lead detective decided to make a statement to the press seeking help in identifying this Jane Doe. Of course, with a public press release can come many, many leads that ultimately lead nowhere. But then, about a week after the Jane Doe was discovered, the lead detective got a call from a woman named Pamela Roost. Pamela was calling because she heard the press release about the Jane Doe 
and it just so happened that her roommate had been missing since that same exact day. Detective Lou Smith, who was the lead detective on the Jane Doe case, was very intrigued. He asked Pamela, okay, so is there anything else unique about your roommate? And Pamela said, yes. Listen, she rarely carried anything on her person except for her single apartment key. Bingo. Detective Smith's ears immediately perked up. He went over to Pamela's Timberland apartment complex located on East Bijou Street. He tried the key they found on Jane Doe and it was a match. Pamela also helped to identify the victim. Jane Doe had her name back. She was 18-year-old Karen Grammer. Karen Grammer was originally from Pompano Beach, Florida. Now, I don't know how to say Pompano. Is it Pampa? Pampa? No. Pompano. Okay, maybe that's it. So Karen was originally from Pompano Beach, Florida, where after her father was murdered, yes, her and her brother Kelsey, yes, famous Kelsey Grammer from the show's Cheers and Frasier, well, after their father's murder, Kelsey and Karen became very close. When Karen was murdered, Kelsey was only 20 years old. Karen had recently moved to Colorado Springs in February of 1975, and she was there looking for work, and she was working as a waitress at the Red Lobster on Academy Drive when she was killed. In backtracking her steps that night, detectives learned that Karen worked her regular shift on June 30th, and then she never returned home. Now, it appeared that Karen's investigation was heating up. Detectives rushed to the Red Lobster to interview anyone who they could. The manager didn't have much to share about Karen's whereabouts on the night she went missing, but he was able to point detectives to a young 17-year-old named Tyler Harrington. Tyler had worked the night shift and was closing the Red Lobster when Karen got off of her shift. So, detectives talked to Tyler, and when he learned that Karen was dead, he blurted out, I didn't think those guys would actually hurt her. Excuse me, what did you say, Tyler? Tyler revealed that on June 30th, Karen worked her regular shift right up until closing. Then she went outside to wait for her boyfriend to pick her up. Tyler should have immediately locked the restaurant door behind her, but he failed to do so when three black men with military-style haircuts walked in. Tyler was like, hey, um, the restaurant's closed. And that's when one of the men showed him a gun and yelled at Tyler to give them all the money in the register. Tyler told the men he couldn't give them any money because the money from the day had all been collected and cleared. Then he shared that someone was waiting for him, so he had to go. Tyler believed the men were spooked by this, so they quickly left, and then he saw the three men approach Karen, who at that time was still standing outside waiting for her ride. With Tyler's description of the three men in hand, the detectives returned to the station. Back at the station, the different detective groups meet to discuss the string of seemingly unrelated murders in this area. When Detective Smith shared the description that Tyler offered, three black men appeared to be military. The lead detective on the Winford Prophet murder case was like, um, well, that kind of sounds like what the eyewitness said about our case. Before this moment, there was no real pressure to consider these cases as connected. But now there were four murders in the span of a few weeks. So were they now looking for a serial killer or a group of serial killers? The thing is that by the time Karen Grammer had been identified, there had been another murder, one that was outside of the Colorado Springs jurisdiction, but it really wasn't too far away. It was a murder that occurred on Fort Carson. 
Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. On July 1st at 9.50 p.m., Milton Abramson, a 60-something-year-old cab driver with the El Paso Cab Company, who only operates inside of Fort Carson, by the way, well, Milton radioed the company headquarters to say, hey, I've been flagged down by two guys, and I'm taking them down to the south side of Fort Carson. Well, that was the last time anyone heard from Milton. By the way, I said 60-something-year-old because there were conflicting reports about his age in the newspapers. After 45 minutes of attempting to make contact with Milton, the cab dispatcher got worried and contacted the military police. They immediately began to search for Milton and his cab. At 1 a.m. on July 2nd, just three hours after Milton made that fateful call, Milton's cab was found in a ditch off the access road to Butts Field. Milton was nowhere near the cab, but the inside of the cab told a harrowing tale. There was blood spatter everywhere. Hours later, at around 9 a.m., Milton's body was discovered on Butts Road, roughly three and a half miles from where his cab was found. His throat had been slashed and he had been stabbed at least 25 times in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Milton's death appeared to be the result of a robbery and the perpetrators made off with a whopping $7. Now, after Milton's death, but before Karen Grammer had been identified, the Colorado Springs Sun reported that police chief Oren Bowling held a press conference. He said that they had some leads in two of the six murders, and he believed that there appeared to be a different motive in the murders and, quote, there is no maniacal killer running loose, end quote. Now, he mentioned six murders, but I only talked to you about five because that's all that I could find. So there may have been another one that I don't even know of. So a county commissioner at the same press conference actually had the audacity to attempt to calm people's nerves by saying, oh, listen, don't worry. Some of the victims were actually involved with criminals. So like, you guys are all safe. What? Really? Well, it turns out there would be more murders. On July 25th, at around 10.10 p.m., police received a call from a resident in the 1300 block of Baylor Drive in Colorado Springs. They were reporting hearing gunshots. Police drove over to investigate, and when they did, sure enough, they found a body. A man stretched out on the curb, dead from three gunshots to the head. He had also been shot in the hand. The victim was holding an empty box of matches and a cigarette lay near the body. 
Inside the man's pant pocket was a wallet intact, revealing the man's identity. It was Winslow Watson III, originally from Pennsylvania. He was employed and lived with a roommate, a soldier named Michael Corbett. Hanley and I couldn't find any information about Winslow's murder investigation, but we thought it was important to bring this murder up because, well, you'll have to wait and see. And after Winslow's murder, there was another one. A little over a month after Winslow's murder, outside of a nightclub, a group of six men, two of them Fort Carson soldiers, were walking down the street or standing in the street when they were the victims of gun violence. It's unclear to me how this shooting went down. The reporting is a bit sketchy. I envision like a drive-by shooting, but there's never any specific mention of a drive-by. Apparently, there were two perpetrators involved and two shotguns. So the victims, after the shooting, they were immediately transported to the hospital, but one of the men did not survive. That victim was 19-year-old Ricky Allen Lewis, who was also known as Lewis Allen Miller. Ricky died when his heart was ruptured by one of the bullets. When detectives went back to the scene to question people about what they saw during the shooting, someone identified one of the shooters by name, a 20-year-old Fort Carson soldier by the name of Michael Corbett. Yep. If a light bulb is going off in your head, yes, Michael Corbett was Winslow's roommate. Winslow, you might recall, was shot in the head three times and left for dead on the curb six weeks earlier. The day after this nightclub shooting, police made two arrests. They arrested Michael Corbett and they also arrested a 21-year-old named Mitchell Martin. At the time of the arrest, authorities confiscated two weapons, a 12-gauge and a 20-gauge shotgun. Testing on these weapons appeared to show that either man, Martin or Corbett, could have been the triggerman. But even with that uncertainty on who shot the weapon, both men were charged with first-degree murder in the shooting death of Ricky Lewis. They were also charged with five counts of first-degree assault and one count of second-degree assault. And I'm assuming this is for shooting at those other people. And now we all know that if you ever commit a crime, you got to do it by yourself. And then once you commit that crime, don't ever tell a soul. And listen, I'm not saying that because I condone committing crimes, but you know, in this case, as soon as the charges came down, people started talking. And one of those people was Mitchell Martin himself. He was like, well, let me tell you what Michael Corbett told me. He told me he stabbed some guy. As reported in the Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph, Mitchell later testified that one day before this, Corbett told him, quote, you know that knife I had? I stuck it in a dude. I stuck him, end quote. Corbett told Michael he stabbed the guy because he figured the victim could identify him later if he was left alive. And if you're connecting the dots, this is referring to Winford Prophet, the soldier looking to score some marijuana who was stabbed at Prospect Lake. Colorado Springs appeared to be a hopping place to be a homicide detective in the summer of 1975. While the detectives on the Ricky Lewis case had made arrests which were leading to indictments and other murders, Detective Smith, who was leading the murder investigation of Karen Grammer, he got a call from a district attorney in New Orleans, Louisiana. The NOLA DA said that they had been working with the FBI to arrest some guy named Larry Dunn. And after they arrested this guy, Dunn told them that he had information about three separate murders that took place in Colorado Springs. And get this, he would be willing to give up some information in exchange for immunity in Colorado. 
When this Dunn character named the murder victims, according to an episode of Homicide Hunter, Dunn said he knew information about the murders of Karen Grammer, Daniel Van Loan, and Winford Prophet. Detective Smith was eager to meet with this Dunn guy, but first he had to get with the Colorado Springs district attorney to see about this immunity deal. The assistant DA working Karen's case was a man named Chuck Heim. Chuck had actually been called out to the crime scene when Karen was discovered. So after seeing her dead body laying there, trust me, he was eager to catch her killer. When presented with the possibility of closing out three murder investigations in his purview, Chuck jumped at the opportunity. Together with Detective Smith, DA Chuck went out to NOLA and sat down with Dunn with the offer that if he told them everything he knew about the three cases and agreed to testify against the other perpetrators involved, he would have immunity from the three murders. And with that, Larry Dunn sang like a canary. Chirp, chirp. But I will tell you what Larry Dunn said next time on Military Murder. If you are interested in more Military Murder episodes, head over to patreon.com slash military murder or subscribe on Apple Premium and get access to over 25 full-length bonus episodes and part two of this case immediately. But you can also head over to my YouTube channel where I have a few videos of cases never before covered on the podcast, like the story of Brittany Mitchell out of Fort Campbell or the story of a killer Marine recruiter who was recently put to death after sitting on death row for 20 years. And then there's the unsolved murder of sailor Terrence Hill Jr., who was killed while home on leave back in 2012. My handle on YouTube, if you're interested in watching those videos, is Mama Margot with a T at the end. All right, shout out to Haley Gray for her research assistance on this episode. My sources for this case included court opinions, articles in the Daily Sentinel, Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph, Colorado Springs Sun, the Denver Post, and Tampa Bay Times. I also watched the Homicide Hunter episode that focused on Karen Grammer's murder, but also briefly mentioned the murders of Daniel Van Loan and Winford Prophet. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. This episode was produced in collaboration with my Patreon and premium subscribers. Executive produced by Bob, Falcon 13, Nicole, Jen, Tina S., and Alicia. My newest associate producer is Rebecca, and my newest assistant producers are Kaylee, Meredith, Kayla, and Taryn. The music was created by TyOps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.